Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you're hearing this, then you're on the public feed, which means you'll get episodes a week after they come out and you'll hear advertisements. You can gain access to the subscriber feed by going to colemanhughes.org and becoming a supporter. This means you'll have access to episodes a week early, you'll never hear ads, and you'll get access to bonus Q&A episodes. You can also support me by liking and subscribing on YouTube and sharing the show with friends and family. As always, thank you so much for your support. Today's episode is a little bit different. This was actually an event hosted by the Intercollegiate Studies Institute that featured myself alongside Glenn Lowry, who, as many of you know, is an economist at Brown University and host of The Glenn Show at Blogging Heads. I thought the conversation was a good one, so I'm releasing it as a standalone podcast. This conversation is a big-picture discussion of the problem of race in America today, the narratives that compete for space in the mainstream media, and the path forward. I hope you enjoy this one as much as I did. Without further ado, Glenn Lowry. But we're going to jump right in in just a second here, but I just want to let all you guys know who are logging on that the latter half of our conversation will be centered on your questions. So you're welcome to go ahead and start dropping the questions in the Q&A box, which you'll see on the right end of your screen right next to the chat box. So make sure you put them in the Q&A tab rather than the chat tab so they don't get lost. Let's go ahead and start the discussion off by defining some terms as we go into the discussion today. So I'd just like to ask kind of broadly, how would you guys define racism? And how is that different from how the term is being used today? That's a big question. (laughs) Well, no, I mean, uh, the uh, obvious thing to say here is uh, something like, this is not a scientific definition, but it's just a sort of common sense. This is a hatred or antipathy an unreasoning disdain, um, a belief in uh, derogatory, uh, uh, you know, characteristics of a group uh, without evidence, a uh, dislike of association or uh, intimacy with, et cetera, kind of aversion to social contact. These would be things that come to mind. Um, And uh, how is it different from the way the term is used today? Well, I mean, today everything is racism, isn't it? I mean, uh, every uh, to be opposed to affirmative action is to be racist. Uh, to cite statistics about the extent of uh, African-American participation in criminal activity uh, is to be racist. To wear a MAGA hat is to be racist. So I, I don't know what, uh, what limits the definition of racism today. Mm-hmm. Having views or taking actions contrary to the desires of a certain set of people who've anointed themselves as the uh, social police of uh, racial etiquette uh, would appear to be the definition now uh, current. Um, but I would have a more parsimonious sense of racism as something of, uh, of old-fashioned uh, contempt, hatred, antipathy, uh, dislike, uh, disdain, uh, based upon uh, nothing other than the racial identity of a person. Hmm. Yeah, I would add, only thing I would add to that is the move from conceptualizing racism as something that um, one locates at the level of the individual to something one locates at the level of the system. 
And whether it goes by systemic racism, structural racism, or institutional racism, the general idea is that what it means to be educated on this issue now is to understand that a system can be racist without anyone in the system being a racist. So the criminal justice system can be racist without, even if no one can locate a specific police officer or judge or prosecutor that is in any way provably racially biased, the system itself just operating by its own logic and its own inertia can produce racist outcomes. And that's what people mean by systemic racism. There's a bit of a contradiction there because on the one hand, people want to say, well, the racism is in the system. It doesn't require any actual racist people to operate. But on the other hand, what I see is, as Glenn observed, an endless obsession with finding people who are racists. So it seems a little bit that there's a desire to have it both ways, that people want to find racists and on a, as expansive a definition of racism as we've ever had. And they want it, they want to find those people, the, um, you know, the, the Karen in Central Park that calls the cops when she arguably shouldn't have, so on and so forth. They want to find, we want to find these people and punish these people as racists. But we, we're also supposed to believe that the, the really important kind of racism is the one that doesn't require anyone at all. Yeah, yeah. I don't think there's any legitimacy to the idea of systemic racism today. Obviously, it complicates the discussion often. And Glenn, you're talking about how the, there's confusion of terms and that anything could be declared racist. But is there some legitimacy beside, behind that idea of systemic racism? Well, yes, I think one could make a certain kind of case. And this picks up where Coleman leaves off in distinguishing between um, the consequences of complex systemic processes. So mass incarceration, this is law, what what things are said to be illegal, war on drugs. This is policing, uh, what activities are monitored and who gets apprehended. This is courts. Uh, how does, uh, you know, pretrial detention work? Who gets a good lawyer? Who gets a bad lawyer? What sentences are handed out? Uh, These are a lot of things that are happening all at the same time. And if the net consequence of these things is to work out adversely to the well-being or the interest of a racially defined group, one can, you know, invoke this idea. I mean, here's what I think is at stake. Uh, If you start with disparities, you don't get talk about systemic or any other kind of racism until you have disparities. First, you have some social outcome that is uneven, some inequality, some disparity. Uh, And then you put to yourself the question of how do I account for this? And you're not a scientist. You're just an ordinary person trying to think about it. Roughly, you have two accounts that you can give. One of them puts the onus on the individuals who are suffering the disparity, and the other puts the onus on, quote, unquote, the system. You can, in effect, blame, quote, the victim, close quote, or you can blame the system. So when people say systemic racism, sometimes I think what they have in mind is, you know, this can't possibly be the um, consequence of the fault of the, the you know, responsibility of uh, these people, because these people are, after all, disadvantaged. They're historically marginalized, et cetera. Uh, this is the consequence. Somehow, I don't quite fully understand it, but uh, long history, you know, 
structures of domination, whatever. And then they have a narrative about how it's a consequence of the system. They're, they're blaming the system, not the persons uh, for the disparity when they invoke the category of systemic racism, I think. Does that make sense to you, Coleman? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And that's, that's exactly why I think it's often vague when people make the charge of systemic racism. It, 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 the, the reason it's such a useful idea is precisely because it's vague, not, not in spite of its vagueness. And I, I also agree that people do view themselves as, have, as, as just choosing between these two options of, of blaming individuals, you know, blaming people suffering in prisons or suffering poverty and saying, actually, it's society's responsibility. It's people with power, people who make policy, et cetera. And given those two choices, it seems like the obvious compassionate choice to many people, at least, is to say, well, the, the, the burden is on those with power. The, bur- the burden is on those who create policies, who run the system uh, to fix these disparities. My, my point of view on it is, I think it's a very, it's, it's a very natural idea to have. But the more and more that I've studied Thomas Sowell's whole career and Nathan Glazer and other people who've spent a, a long time actually studying cultural patterns between different groups and how that alone can yield uh, very disparate outcomes. And just, you know, forget, you know, it, it's useful to, to not think about the American context because it's such a hot blooded conversation. You know, even for me, it, it's a very hot blooded conversation here. But you go and you study the history of ethnic groups in Europe and, you know, in the 20th century, and you, you'll find massive disparities between ethnic groups that, as an American, you, you may or may not have even heard of that can't plausibly be explained by the system. And in fact, the more you study this, I think, the, the more you're, you're probably going to, you're, the more you're going to just adjust your priors to expect disparity rather than parity. And that, that's a big fundamental difference between the way I think about the issue of systemic racism and the, the way many people on the left think about the issue of systemic racism. My starting assumption is that in a multi-ethnic society, no two groups are going to have equal outcomes, probably. It's, that's not a, a hard and fast rule, but that's what you should bet. And... You know, if we were just talking about white, if we were just talking about whites and Asians, inevitably we would have a nuanced conversation about why Asians have higher incomes and so on and so forth. And we could talk about that at length without the knee-jerk assumption being that this mu- there must be some some something to fix um, in the system. Yeah. So we hear a lot of talk today about the idea of anti-racism. How does that relate to the discussion of systemic racism and how does it differ from opposition to racism in general? Then you want to start? Okay, I'm, I'm happy to take a crack at it. Uh, I'm not sure I understand the anti-racism mania now uh, sweeping the land. Um, I think some of it has to do with uh, with uh, covering your ass if you're running an institution and uh, you need to kind of inoculate yourself against the possibility of 
um, your brand being diminished by your career being bes- besmirched or tarnished by uh, accusations of, uh, you know, a failure to respond to people's concerns, microaggression, or, you know, tacit racism, uh, implicit bias and so on. Uh, so, you know, the proactive thing to do is to embrace some, you know, progress of uh, some process of uh, institutional examination or whatnot, which which leads to some of this stuff. Um, but I don't I don't maybe Coleman has something interesting to say here. I don't think I do. I, I, I'm kind of befuddled by people. uh uh, you know, kneeling and asking for forgiveness and declaring themselves to be racist and apologizing for it and acknowledging and checking their privilege and all of that. It, it's uh, something that uh, that I, I don't fully grasp what's going on there psychologically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, uh, w- one of my professors at Columbia, Barbara Fields, who's a, a great historian and writer on these topics, she she said one day in class, which I always remembered, anti-racism is not a movement. It's a starting point. I thought that was interesting. And it, it captured my feeling about this as well. Um, it seems to me basically all people of goodwill are anti-racist in the, li- in the literal sense of wanting to live in a world where Ultimately, nobody ever experiences the stinging rejection of being discriminated against on account of something you can't possibly control. I I think, you know, most I find most children, the moment they first hear Martin Luther King's speech, understand this intuition just intuitively. So that that's a starting point. That's. But what has been branded as branded as anti-racism on the left presupposes a very particular definition of racism that is actually really the, should be the crux of the debate, right? It presupposes that you basically can't be racist against white people because of prejudice plus power. It presupposes that um, an Asian American applicant that applies to a college isn't and gets rejected where they wouldn't if they were say black or Hispanic or maybe even white. It presupposes that race, the definition of racism excludes instances like that, which is not at all obvious. I'm not saying it's it's obviously not true either. I think there's a, there's a, there's a very real philosophical first principles debate to be had about, you know, when when we're thinking about situations where there's a direct trade-off between having a school or a corporation say accurately reflect the U.S. population by race in terms of census distribution versus racially discriminating against individual applicants. Because on one conception of racism, you know, you're, you're failing to be anti-racist if you don't discriminate against individual applicants. And on another definition of racism, you have the opposite problem. So I think as as Barbara Field said, basically everyone in this debate that that I know, except for the true fringe, is broadly against racism, and it's about the the, the we can't presuppose um, the what should be the crux of the conversation we're having. Yeah, no, I think that's a really helpful perspective. How would you 
advise conservatives who kind of oppose the idea of anti-racism as a movement in the way we're seeing with like white fragility trainings uh, or critical race theory, but are truly anti-racist and are opposed to, you know, want to fight racism when it exists today. How would you encourage them to go about entering these conversations? <laughs> Coma. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, I mean, I know that the people by the millions are grappling with this problem all across the country. How do I, ha, ha, you know, say, God forbid, you're not so sympathetic to Black Lives Matter. Say you see the protests and the shouting people, shouting at people at restaurants, you know, and your mind goes to the cultural revolution in China. You're worried. We're headed in a, in a direction that is deeply unhealthy and, and bad for the country and terrifying. In fact, and say say that's your opinion. How do you go about saying that at work, assuming the people around you are at least giving lots of lip service to Black Lives Matter, as almost every corporation in the country is. The, the, the honest truth is that from what I can see, you're unlikely to get a very fair shake if you express your opinion. That might not be true everywhere. That, that could, be, could be because I pay attention to the issue too much. I have a distorted view of how bad it is out there. But it does seem to me that there's almost, uh, unless you actually go the route that I've gone or that Glenn Lowry has gone, where you you clear the uncanny valley of expressing a controversial opinion to the point where you are actually now known as someone who has such and such opinions so that your your reputation can't possibly suffer more by expressing them anywhere. Um, unless you're in the handful of individuals in that category, which you're not. You're, you stand a, v a very, a very high chance of losing face, even for expressing the most nuanced and carefully worded and compel compelling answer that is skeptical of Black Lives Matter. And I don't, I don't, I think it's on the one hand, I want to tell people never back down from your principles, uh, because you know if you do, then you become part of the snowballing effect of self-censorship that makes it harder for the next person. But at the same time, I know that people are dealing with uh, a, a lot of different issues. Not everyone is in a position to, to where they can just sacrifice as a matter of principle. So I wish I had better advice to give than that. Well, I, I just add something. We're, we're college uh, people here, right? Intercollegiate studies and so on. So we read books and, um, you can learn uh, some lessons, I think, by comparative study, by looking at other times and places in which similar kinds of dynamics have been at work. Uh, read uh, George Orwell, Politics in the English Language, reflecting on the debate on the left of uh, British politics in the 1940s about uh, communism and so on. Or read Vaclav Havel, the Czech uh, politician playwright about the Samizdat uh, producing uh, Eastern European intellectuals during the time of uh, Soviet hegemony in Eastern Europe, when uh, people were trying to break out of, uh, how does Vaclav Havel put it? He, he talks about living within the lie. Uh, he asked us to envision the dilemma of a, of a simple man, a, a grocer, who every morning puts a sign in the window next to his tomatoes and his lettuce 
that says workers of the world unite. And he inquires, why does this gentleman do this when everyone knows it's a fraud? Every, everyone knows that uh, the party lies constantly. Everyone knows that the official ideology of the state is completely bankrupt. And yet this goes on for decades of people reproducing and reinforcing this idea. And he talks about how uh, some uh, intellectuals come to see the imperative of living within the truth. And this is really a tribute to a kind of uh, courage and a kind of a heroism, if you like. Uh, some of these people paid with their lives uh, for their willingness. I'm not saying that the current mania about anti-racism and the, the kind of cancel culture of political correctness is anything like totalitarian uh, rule. But I am saying the personal challenge of do I uh, adhere to my convictions and live within the truth or do I by degrees submit myself to uh, a kind of tyrannical domination by others? This is bullying. This, this is, you know, I mean, small b, bullying. This is uh, uh, a kind of, you know, domination of, of, of uh, a person to feel like you have to withdraw within yourself and you can't even say what you're actually thinking. Um, so I didn't answer the question. The question was what to do. Uh, my, my advice was read what the uh, East European intellectual dissidents do in uh, Vaclav Havel's telling in his book called The Power of the Powerless, and then think about your own situation. Now, both of you have spent a lot of time in college classrooms. So I'm wondering, what has your experience been like there? Have you found that voicing your opinion has gotten you into any trouble or has it been smooth sailing? What's it been like? I think we're going to have to answer individually since my time yeah, in the classroom is as a professor and Coleman's so far is as a student. And I'll just say that I get to say what I want to say when I'm up in front of the room and the students don't always feel entirely free to uh, come back and tell me what they think. Uh, I do get pushbacks in the end of semester comments from some students who didn't like what I have to say, but I, I find that on the whole, I'm able to, as it were, get away with it, being a curmudgeon. Maybe it's a matter of age, uh, being, as Coleman says, already out of the closet so that there are no surprises when people encounter me. Um, and maybe also having pretty good arguments for some of the positions that I make. And I'll just say, finally, having the, uh, uh, the willingness to expose myself a little bit by uh, being vulnerable, by you know, confessing error by changing my mind and talking about how I've changed my mind, things like that. As for me, um, my experience at Columbia was completely dependent on the professor. Mm -hmm. There were some professors that were, um, I think of Philip Kitcher, for example, who used to be president of the American Philosophical Association. The, uh, the picture of te trying to teach you how to think rather than what to think. You know, uh, we took a ethics class and he would give you two papers pro affirmative action, two papers against it. And you would just spend the whole time trying to understand the argument, the strengths and weaknesses. Um, unfortunately there, are, there are lots of professors who aren't like that. And the professors that are dogmatic are invariably dogmatic uh, on progressive identity politics, uh, left wing there, there are no, to, to my knowledge, there are no dogmatic right-wing professors. Right? So in that t sense, it's, it's very slanted. 
I've been in a, I, I, in a sense, it's not so different from the real world in that you end up affiliating with and choosing peers that, you know, don't hate you or will let you speak. So you end up choosing classes and screening these professors out ultimately. But if you're not, not. I've, I've been, I was in a class once where a professor told me all people of color are victims of oppression and we read Foucault and I had so many questions that I knew that other 80 people in the class, you know, at least some of them would, I knew I would lose face with them if, if I even asked a skeptical question about, you know, Foucault, Foucaultian postmodern epistemology. I really wanted to, but I frankly didn't have the spine to um, because the professor so signaled that one was not supposed to disagree. So it's, it's, it was boring and, um, and uh, not intellectually stimulating at all. And there's a lot of classes like that too. Do you have any advice for college freshmen who perhaps doesn't know what the lay of the land is yet? Because um, obviously a lot of like the anti-racism classes and focus have been kind of sweeping through college campuses. And just last week at Vanderbilt, a student was docked points on a quiz for rejecting the statement that the Constitution was designed to, to perpetuate white supremacy and to protect the institution of slavery. So obviously right now it's, you know, kind of hostile to people who are more proud of the American founding and have perhaps a more nuanced view. So do you have thoughts for someone who's just showing up on campus and is entering the fray? I would say um, screen your professors before you take classes. Experiment. Listen, first of all, you might be wrong. You know, I might be wrong. So take one class with a professor that you know is is into it and see for yourself um what you're able to say and and but ultimately you might you might find you should screen your professors beforehand and only try to spend your very limited time in college with professors that are worth your time and the second piece of advice i would say is if you're motivated to find like-minded people um you're probably not crazy there are probably a lot of other people on campus that are having the same thoughts and feelings that you are. I found that was true at Columbia. And if you find, you will find, find a group of people that are hungry to discuss all of these issues and start a club. Um, I was part of a club like that at Columbia and it's one of my fondest memories. When do you have like, I was just going to say, sounds like good advice from the younger generation. Yes, yes. I'd like to shift gears a little bit and, and talk about a more recent event that happened just this earlier this week. Trump, and I'm sure you guys may have heard about it, Trump directed federal agencies to cease and desist from using taxpayer dollars to fund what the White House referred to as divisive un-American propaganda training sessions. So what are you guys' thoughts on this development? Do you think it's a wise move on the president's part or will it just fuel tensions further? Well, I mean, we are in an election year. Let's not lose track of that. Um, So, you know, the cynic in me wants to uh, hold my wallet here to guard against the possibility of manipulation by uh, an interested party that is the president of the United States who has his own agenda 
Um, on the other hand, uh, my sense of the matter is that a lot of these uh, struggle sessions, and that's what they sometimes seem to descend to, in which uh, uh, people are, in effect, berated for uh, uh, not embracing the uh, the latter day wisdoms about uh, racism and anti racism, uh, are objectively problematic. I mean, they they are something that a organization well might, uh, if it's well run, elect uh, to eschew, uh, to to not get involved in. And I, it seems to me that it's perfectly defensible position to say, and one shouldn't say this without explicit reference to the content of these sessions, so, because I'm stereotyping now, I'm characterizing them without being concrete, and I don't have all the facts about what's actually going on uh, uh, at which this directive uh, was targeted. But protecting employees from indoctrination sessions of the sort that I can imagine a Robin DiAngelo uh, would would uh, propagate uh, seems to me to be a perfectly defensible thing to do, perfectly sensible thing to do. So I was hardened. I was hardened to hear it. Yeah, I for for me, I think um, I guess my my opinion on the wider issue is a little bit different than my position on this particular this particular move by trump mm-hmm. said adam you know it could be election posturing um to what extent does he have the ability to control what's in curriculums obviously there's a there's a common core i don't i don't know all of this but you know obviously the, the president is president's not a dictator and there's something um um unnerving about the 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 notion that a, a president could have the impulse to just ban something like that. That said, I completely agree with the feeling behind what he is communicating. What you know, the subtext of this is there's something deeply wrong with the 1619 retelling of American history, and that retelling is increasingly um, expanding into actual school curriculums and getting into the minds of children as if it were factual and that who, you know, who's actually going to stand up to it? Like who, who's going to stand up to it and condemn it to the degree that it should be condemned? Um, you know, even if lots of people disagree with the idea that the, you know, the constitution was um, much more a slavery preserving document than the opposite or that that slavery characterizes American history in a unique way um, that puts it apart from the slavery that's been practiced all over the world for 10,000 years or more. Um, let me put it this way. I, I plan to have kids one day. And by the time I have kids, I'm, I'm never going to worry. I'm not going to have to worry that their textbook will... Uh, will will whitewash slavery or will downplay the horrors of chattel slavery in the United States, as many textbooks in U.S. history have. I'm not going to have that worry. What I'm the worry that I'm going to be justified in having is that what they're going to get in history class is going to turn them into an, an ungrateful, small-minded hater of their own country um, to to a degree that is totally irrational and 
and, and that that uh, to a degree you really arrive at through propaganda that ignores the entire rest of the world. And that's going to be my worry. And so to the extent that what Trump is saying is, well, listen, guys, who's going to stop it? Who actually has the balls to, to stand up to this? I agree with that sentiment. Let me distinguish here between uh, what's taught in schools, like the uh, propagation of the 1619 Project's view into the history classes in American high schools, on the one hand, and what's done with employees of the federal government in terms of diversity training, on the other. Those are different things. And I think the president does have the authority to direct federal agencies uh, not to spend money on diversity training of a particular sort. He certainly can't tell the school district of uh, the city of Chicago or whatever what to put in their curriculum. That's going to be decided at the local level. I just wanted to be clear about that. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. Do you guys have recommendations on resources that uh, students should look to or like Coleman, the type of thing that you would like your future children to see in the classroom as they're trying to have a holistic understanding of our history and of where we are today? Any actual history book, you know, read, read Edmund Morgan, American, you know, uh, American slavery, American freedom, or, you know, any of the classic history books, even if they have a um, left wing or progressive bent to them are better than what what's being offered by, you know, by journalists with an agenda. So it's not that I want my, my children to come away having the same politics as I do. I just want them to have a balanced outlook, to have been exposed to both sides. And I think, you know, the, the resources I, I would recommend are sort of are, are no different than um, than you would expect from just a responsible history teacher. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. No, I think that those are definitely good advice or good advice. I know a lot of people are asking if you have any specific books that address the current issue as opposed to just history. If you have recommendations as to resources that they should turn to. Well, I do have one. Peter Wood of the National Association of Scholars has a book that's about to come out called 1620. And it is a critique of the 1619 project. And it's it's just beautifully done. He's an anthropologist by profession, but uh, in fact, plays the role of a of a historian here in recounting the early settlement of uh, uh, what had become the what became the United States of America in Virginia and in Massachusetts. And in looking at the nature of uh, of uh, social, economic, political life amongst the these in these settlements uh, into which Africans were introduced, as the 1690 Project points out. But uh, their status in uh, law in Virginia was not yet settled into a kind of racial chattel slavery for another, I don't know, 75 to 100 years. And it's just anyway, I don't want to try to describe this entire book. He takes on the New York Times uh, publicity machine and how it promotes the 1619 Project. He takes on the politics of the newsroom and of the uh, left intelligentsia in the country who have fully embraced what Coleman was decrying as a kind of uh, account of the country that uh, was uh, extremely unsympathetic and and uh, disdainful of, of what was accomplished in the creation of the United States of America at the end of the 18th century. 
uh, Peter Wood's book, 1620, uh, which will be available, I expect, in a matter of weeks, uh, something that I think people should know about. And then the other one is the 1619 Project by Philip Magnus, who's, who's written some very good long essays about the relationship between slavery and capitalism, to what extent American wealth comes as a result of slavery. He's an economist and political historian, um, so I recommend his book. Yeah, no, definitely write those down for those of you who've been asking. Uh, I'm just wondering, have you guys found that there are a lot of kind of middle ground uh, perspectives that are being offered? Because it seems often with these fierce national debates, there's a lot of polarization where you have the the wide extremes as opposed to trying to grapple with issues. And obviously you guys are doing that, you know, in, in your work and doing great work there. But have you found that you're the outliers or are you finding that there's more of a uh, uprising of kind of the middle ground there? I'm not sure I could judge whether there's an uprising of centrist political or intellectual analysis. It, you know, I, I'm not I'm not really sure how I could judge it. But I on on this topic, I've people I've read that are you know, consistently interesting and in their analysis of issues, not predictably left or right. I, I would put Kathy Young has written about the 1619 Project from, I guess, as close to a centrist perspective as, I, as I've as i read. Glenn, do you have any thoughts there? Uh, not really. Uh, I mean, there are, we live in a highly polarized time, right? I mean, mm-hmm. they, there are efforts, I, I think, of braver angels this is John Wood Jr. Um, you know, let's get people around a kitchen table, metaphorically speaking, who are pro or anti pro life or pro choice or who are pro Trump or anti Trump or whatever, and see if we can't, you know, affirm our humanity, our common humanity by agreeing to disagree about some things, but nevertheless maintaining a constructive uh, relationship of deliberation and so on. This kind of this kind of talk. So, you know, there are people who realize, I think, the threat uh, to the republic uh, from allowing uh, the uh, fiercely uh, partisan disagreement to harden, uh, allowing ourselves to get uh, settled into arm, as it were, armed camps, lobbing grenades back and forth at each other uh, and who are trying to, uh, you know, maintain space for for, uh, common good to be affirmed. But that's all very generic. I mean, I don't have any, I, I don't have anything further to offer on that. Yeah, so we've got a lot of questions that are building up in the Q&A over here. So I think we'll transition over into audience questions. Uh, but before we do that, if you've enjoyed what you've heard tonight, uh, this event is just a taste of what ISI has to offer. And if you're tired of progressive orthodoxy on campus and eager to go beyond the narrow range of debate in the classroom, I'd encourage you to come learn the timeless principles of liberty with the Intercollegiate Studies Institute. ISI introduces students to the American tradition of liberty and to a vibrant community of students and scholars. Our members get an education and a community that they don't find at their universities. And in the process, they become articulate voices for conservative principles. So if you want to get the college education you deserve, I'd encourage you to become a member today at join.isi.org which is a link that's pinned to the top of the chat there. And also just encourage you guys to check out uh, both Coleman and Glenn's podcast. Coleman's speaking over at Conversations with Coleman, 
And then Glenn is at the Glenn Show. Um, if you want to hear more specifically what they have to say, I'd highly encourage checking those both out. But just to launch off our audience questions, uh, Trevor asks, are the ideas of white fragility and white privilege useful in understanding and addressing racism? And why or why not? So, Coleman, do you want to start that off? Um, sure. I, I don't think... I don't, I'm not sure I could be friends with someone who actually took white fragility as a recipe for how to live. Um, luckily, I don't know anyone like that. But what she says in the, in the book is essentially for if, uh, you know, say you, you and I are having a conversation, you're white, I'm black. There's there are totally normal human conversational moves and feelings that you're you're not supposed to avail yourself of. Or else you you fall into the sin of committing, you know, white fragility, you can't remain silent. You can't argue back. This is if we're talking about race. You can't you can't express your opinion. You, you can't express your disagreement no matter how how understanding the mere fact that I'm black and you're white means you have to accept what I'm saying. You have to a admit that you're racist uh, as a starting point. And anything less than that admission is just on this view by definition, denialism. So it's a, it's um it's a very strict, uh, again, like I, I have intimate friendships with white people and I don't think any of them could operate under such a, 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 a rubric. It's a very strange way to show you respect me as a black person to say, you'll never disagree with anything I say. In fact, what you're treating me like implicitly is like, I don't know, a, a petulant child who, who can't be, can't be pushed back against because my feelings because I'm so I'm I'm so um, unreachable by reason that you have to essentially you have to be the adult in the room, and and I have to be the child. So that 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 I don't see how that points a path forward at all. I suppose you could say that there's some value in asking people to put themselves in the other person's shoes. So if you're an organization that's mostly white and there are relatively few people of color in it. It's not unreasonable to ask if you're a white person in that organization that you imagine yourself to be this other guy. Imagine yourself to be the odd person out, the the only woman in, on the team or the only black uh, in the in the department or something like that. How do you think it feels? How do you think it feels if people look at you and they impute to you certain views or or expectations or whatever just based upon the fact of the way do you that it uh you look uh how do you think it feels to be you know in that position and if if that's what people have in mind when they they talk about privilege be aware of the fact that whiteness actually matters in certain circumstances and that people who are not white in those circumstances may have to bear certain burdens or meet certain challenges. I mean, I can go that far. 
of course, you know, you could also ask the person to imagine what it's like to be the white person in that circumstance. For example, to imagine being a cop confronted with a recalcitrant citizen who might be dangerous and armed and you're white and you have to deal with that situation and you might be afraid and you might do whatever you do. I could ask a person to imagine and put themselves in that. So in that situation, so in a way, that's just a kind of human empathy. And you can ask it of people, depending on the circumstance, whether they be white or non-white. And so far, I'm, I'm willing to go. But I think there's something really important in what Coleman just said, which is that uh, often this emphasis on, you know, white silence equals violence, the, this, this idea of check your privilege, uh, presumes a certain kind of black fragility. It, it's it's kind of predicated upon the idea, idea that black people have to be uh, treated with kid gloves in all situations. Otherwise, uh, offense is given to them. Discomfort is imposed upon them. Uh, they are uh, made not to feel welcome. Uh, what What's the new uh, the term of art? Inclusion and belonging. You know, inclusion and belonging. We have to make sure that people feel that they belong. Uh, and this uh, infantilization of black people uh, on the supposition that the least off words said, the uh, smallest gesture might be, uh, you know, somehow threatening to their very sense of well-being uh, is, I think, what's at the root of a lot of this emphasis on, uh, on uh, white privilege and uh, so on. Andy has a question for us here. Uh, he wants to know if there's anywhere you see systemic racism in the United States today. So perhaps not in the entire system, but are there any systems where you do see racism? Um, so tabling the question of systemic, whether I would call this racism or systemic, I think is a, a long and complicated question. Where do I see racism Presumably, I, I, I imagine that the, the questioner means against black Americans. Um, I saw, I think, uh, no doubt some people in the audience will also have seen a, um, a documentary. I can't remember who did it, but it came out about nine months ago. And I believe it was about the housing market, the real estate market in Long Island. I could, I could get, I might have gotten some of these details wrong, but I think that's what it was. And they just basically did a sting operation. They put people undercover. They got two, you know, 50 year old white man, 50 year old black man made everything about them identical um, other than the race um, and sent them in to see real estate agents and, and look at houses with an undercover camera and found um, a disturbingly high level of disparate treatment uh, between in, in the way that that um, a lot of people would predict, which is to say black people were treated worse. Um, and so so that there's no denying that that racial bias exists. Um, and I do think that kind of experiment is the best way to show it, uh, the most compelling way to show it. Um, maybe that's what people mean by systemic racism. Again, there it's, it's still a little confusing because you can actually locate the people in the documentary that are being racist and their faces on camera. And, you know, these people, some of these people are mortified and have made public apologies and, and whatnot. So it seems very much like a case of individual racism. But again, that's a longer conversation about what people mean by those terms. 
Uh, I want to add something. Um, I think there's a lot of racism. Uh, I think there's always going to be a lot of racism. Um, I think we're many of us guilty of it. Let's look at the marriage market. Let's look at who makes choices about intimate associations with other people. Do you think people are doing that without regard to race? Well, if there were, there would be a lot more interracial marriage than there actually is. What about adoption? Is the average uh, waiting time for an orphan and for someone to uh, offer to adopt them, an infant, uh, independent of the race? I don't think so. I think white babies are very scarce and and highly prized uh, objects of adoption. And I think that uh, black babies languish in adoption uh, without uh, without anyone offering to take them up. What about in vitro fertilization in the market for uh, eggs? I'm I'm looking to uh, purchase an egg. Do you think that the value in the marketplace of uh, a woman's egg is independent of her race? I know it's not independent of her race. Uh, So there's a a lot of uh, preferential association behavior, not just in real estate, but also in life that reflects people's differential valuation of prospective intimate partners based upon their racial identity. I don't think we need to stop the world from turning because that goes on. It's a part of life. So Mikhail asks in a similar vein, uh, if there's a way of talking about these racist incidents that happen and the racial biases that acknowledges the impact of things like slavery and Jim Crow laws without employing the systemic racism rhetoric, which I know you both have taken issue with, and I think rightfully so. So you're talking about racial, racist incidents. uh, How can we talk about this productively when we're talking about things that do need to be changed when there are problems in the system that are real, perhaps, and could be addressed, but we have this whole issue with the rhetoric of systemic racism? Do you have advice for someone engaging in that conversation? I'm not sure I perfectly understand the question. Maybe, Glenn. Um, I think what's being asked is um, maybe I don't like a lot of this uh, latter-day fashionable emphasis on systemic racism, but I do realize that, um, I don't know, Ta-Nehisi Coates has a point when he talks about redlining, creating facts on the ground that really blighted the lives of African-Americans and that those effects persist. So can I acknowledge that historical uh, link without necessarily buying the entire ideological outlook uh, that we, we see in some of the anti-racist literature? Isn't that, um, that's how I understand the question. So, okay, having clarified the question, Coleman, and I await your answer with interest. <laughs> Is that, was that a good summary of the question? Yes. No, I think that gets to the point. Yeah, well, yeah, then d- definitely. I, I think... Um, I will say, you know, if I try to transport myself back to 15 years old before I had ever encountered anything remotely smelling like critical race theory or woke, I think my attitude towards the history of racism was one of sincere relief that that era was over of, um, anger at the thought that anyone had ever experienced such horrors and pride that 
you know, the civil rights movement was such a, a noble and peaceful and universally admired um, affair, peaceful on the part of the protesters and, and, and whatnot. And a, a kind of pride in looking back on that as an American touchstone of, of progress. And implied in that was, you know, that, that we had o- overcome something horrible, something um, deeply unethical. And I don't think, so I don't think any of the, the note, the notion that white people have to be meditating on their privilege and we have to have our racial identities on the forefront of our consciousness, um, that we have to condemn America as a, as a unique, uh, uniquely evil nation. I don't think any of that is implied in a frank acknowledgement of, of the sins of of our history. I mean, the strange thing is that a a lot of people, I think will say things like America, you know, we don't care about the past enough. We just, we want to, we want to brush it away. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to have the uncomfortable conversations about redlining it, blah, blah, blah. I think what is actually true is that in general, people all across the world don't like talking about the the horrible things that their country has done. For the most part, the typical person, the typical, you know, British person, the typical Chinese person doesn't like thinking about something horrible China China did 50 or 100 or 200 years ago. It's just it's not really in the typical person's nature to dwell or to feel shame for such a thing. That said, America, if anything picks America apart, it's not the degree to which we don't look at our history. It's the degree to to which we obsess over it relative to other places on earth. Um, You know, Saudi Arabia abolished slavery in the 1960s. I would, I'm, I'm curious how much they think about it or if they think about it at all. So that's the comparison to me. I think often we are blaming America for things that are sort of flaws and foibles and unfortunate features of human nature. And in fact, we're not um, unusually bad on those issues. I I would say we're unusually good. I just want to add that I want to add two things. One is it's very hard to know as a matter of social science, the causal consequences of historical events that, you know, you, you, you have had redlining, how big an impact did redlining have on the nature of life in an inner city uh, ghetto today? Uh, you you had uh, discrimination and uh, uh, not equal pay for equal work. What is the consequence of that fact of history for the disparity in wealth holdings between black and white families today? It's very hard to know the answer to these questions, just as a matter of data uh, causal analysis, inference, statistics, it's, it's not such an easy thing to know. What is the uh, implication of slavery for the structure of African-American family life in the 21st century? It's almost certain that the consequences of slavery were not neutral with respect to the way Black people live among ourselves, but it's very hard to know. Uh, so, so that's one thing. The other thing is, even if one could establish a causal link for historical events, it doesn't follow that the way to best respond to that consequence is to uh, develop policies along the same lines as the history uh, 
produce the circumstance. Racial discrimination in the past, which leads to poverty amongst African-Americans today, uh, might be best met by the development of social policies today that take care of the problem of poverty for all people, including those who happen to be poor because their ancestors were discriminated against. So um, I, I, thought it, I thought it was in, important to emphasize both of those points. One's an epistemic point. How do you know what the causal effect is? And the other is a kind of normative point about what's the best thing for society to do, given that you identify a particular causal effect, and it need not be to have a race-defined uh, uh, remedy in response to the history. One student mentions that you, Coleman, have spoken in the past about closing the wound, as in resolving the psychological feeling of injustice that Black Lives Matter supporters in the Black community often seem to have. What do you guys think are the best ways of doing so going forward? Yeah, so what, when I've spoken of closing the wound, I'm, I'm thinking of people, and I, I have no idea how many people there are. Um, it's not most Black people that I know. The, the reason I met people like this is from having talked about reparations. But there is a set of people for whom the fact, the historical fact of slavery represents a, a psychic wound to them, almost, a, almost akin, almost as if there was trauma that they experienced in their lifetime. The desire, obviously, my desire for anyone with any level of trauma, whether it is because something that happened to them or because they feel a deep connection to those who suffered during slavery. I want, you know, to figure out how that person can deal with the trauma, you know, to, to get to the place where it feels like a closed wound for them. So the question is, how do we get there? And I think a lot of, and then the wider question is as a nation, how do we feel that, that we've not closed the chapter, but done some, some kind of healthy, I don't know, truth and reconciliation around the topic of slavery such that it doesn't, it no longer feels like an open wound for people. Right. And that, so I think some people imagine that reparations is going to help us get to that place, but I think they are misunderstanding the nature of the problem. If someone feels a deep psychic wound over something that happened hundreds of years ago, I'm not sure that there is actually anything that can be done at the level of public policy coming from Washington that can actually help that person no longer feel that this is a deep wound. There was someone who once said of therapy that, you know, often therapy can be great, but there are certain cases where um, you try to get to the bottom of something and you realize there actually is no bottom. And I think that's true for, for certain people on the issue of slavery, which is to say if reparations happen tomorrow, they would be surprised at how, how little it changed in their psychology the next day. And we would be exactly where we were. So when people talk about healing the national soul, that's what comes to mind for me. Gwen, do you have any thoughts to add there? <laughs> yeah, but I don't know if I can say them out loud. Slavery was a long time ago. A person walking around in the year 2020, an American, an African-American, 
we are amongst the richest people of African descent on the planet. Um, Nigeria is a country of almost 200 million people. If I'm not mistaken, its gross uh, domestic product is on the order of magnitude of $600 billion a year, less than a trillion. There are 200 million Nigerians. Their GDP is less than a trillion. Uh, there are 35 million Americans. Uh, we're about a tenth of the population, maybe a little bit more. And the GDP here in the United States is on the order of magnitude of $20 trillion a year. We are not proportional. We have lower incomes on average, but not half. Uh, we're vastly richer than, uh, than the Nigerians. I'm, I'm sorry for that little arcane calculation, but I'm just trying to say Black people in America are rich relative to the world's population. We're powerful. There was just a black president of the United States who was commander in chief of the largest, uh, most powerful military in the history of the world. There are black billionaires. We could name them. Um, walking around burdened psychologically by the fact that some of your ancestors were enslaved 150 years ago, some of them because some of your ancestors are European and some of your ancestors are Native Americans. It's not a rational posture. You should be disabused of it. Um, what is this race thing that we keep uh, reifying and defining ourselves totally in terms of it? Some of my ancestors were enslaved, not all of them. Uh, so, I, I mean, I almost want to try to disabuse the person uh, who needs to be healed from this wound of uh, having to contemplate the fact that some of their ancestors were enslaved, disabuse them of their, of their, uh, the psychological cul-de-sac into which they have wandered. Sorry. Coleman, would you agree with that? Absolutely. I mean, I, I think I said it more diplomatically <laughs> as is my style, but I feel the exact same way. I mean, listen, I, I grew up, so I have ancestors that were slaves in America on my father's side. Um, on my mother's side, not not slaves in America, but probably probably in the Caribbean. Who knows? The bottom line is I came up very aware that I was descended of slaves. In fact, when I was a kid, my grandmother would often show me the names of our ancestors in the wills of ultimately Thomas Jefferson, um, because it was Wormley Hughes and um, um, Betty Brown and a few other names where we have the whole uh, lineage go from them to us because they kept great, great records at Monticello. So I grew up very much close to the knowledge that I myself was descended of people who were slaves in this country, but it never, and, and there was something um, interesting about that to me. You know, I find ancestry to be interesting. I understand why people, you know, spit in the tube and send it to ancestry.com. Um, it's fascinating to see where the people who, you know, contributed to your existence came from. But there was never any thought in my mind that because they were slaves and because I was descended from slaves who had the same last name as me and, you know, that therefore their wound was somehow mine. It would have 
it, it would have felt totally disingenuous and posturing for me to adopt their wound as if it, it was my own. In fact, it would be, it would be, it would be um, disingenuous of me to adopt my mother's wound as a, as a, you know, as a kid who grew up in the chaos of the South Bronx in the sixties and seventies to appropriate even her uh, traumas would be disingenuous of me and, and unhealthy um, uh, detrimental to my own happiness and the happiness of those around me, much less uh, ancestors of mine from, you know, several hundred years ago. So I do think it is, a very strange way to go through the world. And it's very strange to see smart people reifying and encouraging that kind of mindset. So this is kind of a a bit of a similar vein. Coleman, you had talked about how it it seems like there's, there's no bottom on the, the push that we have in trying to close this wound or really just perpetuate it. Um, We have a couple students who are asking what do you guys think that Black Lives Matter supporters would need to see to conclude that systemic racism has been resolved in America? Is there anything? Well, just stop killing us is what they say. So an easy answer would be uh, termination and end to uh, police killings of uh, black of black people in American cities. Of course, that's not going to happen. You know, I regret to report that that's not going to happen. Uh, I'm sorry, maybe I should make myself clear because we're a country of 330 million people because there are tens of thousands of encounters between police officers and citizens every day because there's a lot of crime that's going on. There are these circumstances in which uh, there are 1,200 police killings of citizens in the United States in a year. Most of them are not black. The idea that there will be a, a secession of incidents where for complicated reasons, there are these uh, conflicts between police and citizens that end up escalating the violence. It's not going to stop. I think we need to take that on board. There are going to be more and more and more of these incidents. We're going to have to find a way as a society of processing these incidents that doesn't re- redound in a violent conflict and uh, uh, so on uh, on each occasion because they are not going to stop. Coleman, do you have thoughts add there? I mean, I, I agree with everything that was just said. It's, um, yeah. So what would BLM have to see? Yeah, I think if there was a complete cessation of videos of unarmed Black people getting shot dead by the cops, I have to imagine BLM would, would lose a lot of steam and there would be, a, a you know, aside from the mo- the truest of the true believers, a lot of the, you know, a lot of people will say, "Oh, we made some progress on this issue." You know, of course, we we hardly go a week in in this country without uh, a white person getting killed by the cops, by the cops. Uh, and that is largely the result of everything Glenn just mentioned. It's partly how big America is. We just have so many more interactions per day than you know your European countries or Canadian countries. And yet we're all watching the same six o'clock news at night, feeling that if something happened twice a week, that we're all implicated because it's our country. So we we face a lot of challenges that other countries don't face. We have a gun culture. We have so many legal and illegal guns that policing here is should be considered a different job than policing in a country where, you know, the person you're pulling over never has a pistol in the glove compartment. So we have a lot of very real challenges 
that the more I think about the issue, the more I don't, the, the more I, I feel it's, it's much harder to solve than people imagine. And um, yeah, I think that is what would have to happen for people in BLM to um, change their approach to the race issue. In light of that, we have another student who is asking what you think the path forward is as people are not working with the real data that you're mentioning about the police shootings when it comes to issues of race, when you have the riots and the looting and the mass hysteria. Is there a path forward? Do you just see this continuing on indefinitely? Shall I? Yeah, go ahead. Nothing continues indefinitely. I mean, I guess I, I, I derive both hope and fear from history because um, everything that has looked, almost everything that has looked permanent, if you're thinking of a crisis, tends to end up being temporary. We, 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 we tend to um, not be imaginative enough about the, the solutions or new equilibriums we'll come to in order to survive as a, you know, as a civilization or as a country. On the other hand, sometimes things go terribly wrong and civilizations collapse or else, you know, Jared Diamond couldn't have written the book with that title. (laughs) And, you know, if I actually think about the details in detail, what would it take for us to engineer ourselves out of this situation where cops get into encounters with civilians, feel their lives to be threatened, pull the trigger and kill some number of those civilians end up being black. Some number of those instances end up being filmed, get going viral. And if the weather is nice enough or, or not cold enough, people, people riot on account of their interpretation of what that video means about the, the country. And if I actually ask myself, what would have to change in that link of causation for this not to keep happening? I can't find a single thing. So uh, other than a... Go ahead. ahead. No, just other than of a a a total reset of how people understand those videos. Um, You know, if everyone in America, you know, were to spend as much time watching the videos of white people getting killed by cops as black people, aside from you know the the mass horror of watching these videos, that would be you know, perpetrated on the American people, I would hope that it would recalibrate people's sense of why these things happen. It would get people to rethink um, their, their jump to assuming that the only reason this could have happened is because the person in question was black. If that were to happen, then I could see us getting out of a situation where there's riots every summer for the next several decades. I was just going to observe that the same uh, question could have been asked, was asked in the 1960s during the uh, period of uh, civil disturbances and the long, hot summers of the 1960s. The the, uh, Kerner Commission on uh, Civil Disorder, big report, I think it came out in 1968, uh, you know, uh, chronicled what was going on and uh, try to give some advice about how the country might uh, get to a better place. That was uh, 1965 Watts, 1967 uh, Detroit, if I'm not mistaken, 1968, a lot of cities with the assassination of King, so on. And that was over 50 years ago. 
Uh, fast forward to 1992, you had the Rodney King uh, riots and the uprisings, as uh, you would have it, uh, in Los Angeles and so on. That was a quarter century ago. And here we are. Uh, I don't see any reason to think that we're not going to be here in another 50 years. I, I see no reason to anticipate that somehow things are going to get better. Things could get worse. Um, you could have widespread civil unrest. We're already seeing something of an inkling of that in the reaction amongst white nationalists and so on. People, there are a lot of guns in the country. Um, it's possible to organize uh, small factions of very uh, devoted people to do very horrible things because our methods of communication and uh, connectivity are so much uh, uh, more powerful than they were uh, just a couple of decades ago. Um, I'm, I'm very concerned. Um, I, I would not have an optimistic uh, forecast. Uh, I think if we can't find some ways of countering some of the underlying problematic uh, uh, ideological commitments, like the commitment to race itself, I mean, I know this is going to sound pie in the sky, but after all, racial identity is a very superficial aspect of human uh, existence. It's not, it's not very deep. It doesn't go all the way down. King had the right idea with this colorblind stuff. I mean, I know it's a microaggression now. It's regarded as a microaggression to say that I don't see color. But, and it, of course, it's impossible literally not to see color. But we definitely don't have to give it the uh, overarching significance that we now do. So uh, maybe there's a way out, but I think it's going to require very deep rethinking about some of our basic conceptual social commitments. Uh, I don't see that happening, so I'm not optimistic. We have a different question uh, here from Carl that's a little bit more personal. Uh, he is wondering... How have your views developed on this issue over time? Because he's heard Pullman talk in the past about how you had more perhaps left-leaning views on the issue of race and have changed over time. Um, Glenn, have you had a similar experience there? Yeah, I've been back and forth. Back and I, I had uh, Stephen Tellis, the political scientist at Johns Hopkins, was on my podcast a couple of weeks ago. And uh I asked him where he was politically. He says, I'm where I've always been. And I've watched you whiz back and forth past me, going from left to right, right to left, left to right, right to left. Uh, so I was a Reagan Republican in the 80s. Uh, and uh, I had a kind of break with the right in the 1990s. I'm old. Everybody should realize I've been around forever. OK, so we're going back 40, 50 years. Uh <laughs> But uh, I broke with my uh, right wing colleagues in the early mid 1990s and uh, became a little bit of a kind of social justice warrior in my own small way. I, I, I wrote about affirmative action in a very supportive way. I wrote about mass incarceration in a very critical way. And I, I found myself in the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years uh, reverting to some of my conservative instincts. And I, I think I've, Got to acknowledge that I was wrong uh, it, with uh, some of the moves that I made away from some of my more conservative uh, instincts. And, uh, you know, it's uh, everybody's different. And my story is I wanted to try to mend fences with um, uh, African-American 
colleagues and friends, and I, I got tired of being out in the wilderness. My ability to tolerate the, the lonely path of the truth teller uh, uh, just waned, and, and, and I, I found myself wanting the comfort of the tribe. I wanted to go home. Uh, and, you know, as a matter of fact, you can't go home again. Just to follow up on that, and Coleman, feel free to jump in on this too. What do you think it means to be conservative on issues of race? I was going to let Coleman comment. No, I, I mean, you're, you're, I like to hear your, because I think, you know, it, it's funny. I, I go back and read Bayard Rustin essays from the 70s, and he would be completely considered a conservative today. You know, it's, it's hard to know that that's always, there's a version of conservatism that is like the Roger Scruton, um, you know, people who have thought deeply about actually what the hell does this word mean? What, what's the common thread of you know, British conservatism in the, in the 17th century and American conservatism today? And they come up with, you know, principles that, you know, broadly make sense. You know, the, the pace of change can't be too fast and preserving what you have and so on and so forth. Principles that, you know, probably to some degree, a lot of liberals might even see some nuggets of wisdom in. But then what is conservative with respect to the issue of race in America is just ever changing. Right. Like to to believe in just equal treatment for individuals is basically the conservative position now. But if you had as as uh, as I think Thomas Sowell has has quipped. If you believe in equal treatment, you'd be a, a radical in, in 1950, like a, a, a centrist in 1980 and a conservative today. Um, so it's, it's hard to know what is meant by that. Now, I think that's right. The use, the use of the category conservative with respect to race commentary doesn't mean the same thing as the use of the category conservative with respect to economic policy or uh, cultural issues or something like that. It it seems largely to mean a willingness to depart from uh, the consensus view about uh, matters of interest to um, to African Americans. So, for example, an emphasis on race neutrality and color blindness is taken to be uh, conservative. A um, willingness to uh, uh, to talk about the Problems in the African-American family life is taken to be conservative. A uh, appreciation of the difficulty of policing a city is taken to be conservative. But these are not, you know, conservative uh, in any kind of deeply ideological way. This is not a theory of the state or uh, a conception of uh, the individual uh, or uh, uh, any kind of coherent uh, cultural uh, vision. Uh, this is merely apostasy. Being conservative in race commentary means deviation from the party line, especially if you're an African-American. So we have a couple students who have been asking uh, kind of as a follow up. Do you see points of agreement between and liberals on issues of race that can help to move the discussion forward? So we keep running and up in the same circle as you guys have talked about. Are there any points of accord that we can find? Coleman, do you have thoughts there? You know, I think probably more people than you might expect would agree about the world that they want to see if they could 
you know, wave a magic wand. Um, I think uh, a lot of people at the Black Lives Matter protests, actually, if, if they could, if they, if they had um, omnipotence, would create the same, a similar world as a lot of people on the right, which is to say, somehow scrub all, you know, racial prejudice from the human mind and create a maximally maximize equality of opportunity and just, you know, get rid of all of the, the, the failing systems and bad incentives and so on and so forth. The, the problem is there's obviously a fringe within, in, in black lives matter who like essentially speaks for black lives matter that has a very different set of concerns, a very different set of goals for, for the world they would want to see. Um, that is much more top down and authoritarian and based on equalizing outcomes at any cost and almost implicitly about domination, really just about domination and respect for, for black people at, at any cost. And, but, but I, I do think there's a, a more agreement than you might expect on what would be the end goal on both sides. When do you have thoughts there? Well, um, I used to be a Christian and there's a passage in the Bible where, uh, the apostle Paul is, uh, in one of the epistles, I can't remember which one, <laughs> I wasn't that good of a Christian. He says, our str- I might be in Romans. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against powers and principalities or something like that. Anyway, if there's a serious person out there who knows their Bible, they will know the passage that I'm referring to. And here's what I'm getting at. The bad ideas in the heads of people is the problem, and they need to be combated and replaced with good ideas. <laughs> okay, so racial essentialism is a bad idea. I'm against Black Lives Matter as a political movement because it's a racially essentialist movement. You could even say it's a racist movement. I know that's a very, very radical thing to say, and I don't, I don't mean to cast aspersions. I, I just mean literally. It essentializes blackness. All lives matter. Now, I know you can't say that because the meaning of those words now in context is freighted with a whole lot of other stuff. If you say it, it's like saying blue lives matter. It's like taking sides. It's, it's like being anti-anti-racist. But it's just true. Um, the, the notion that race is the central thing driving these outcomes is wrong. It's just an error. People should be disabused of it. Um, our political institutions ought not to be so organized that they think of them, the people who are actors in them, think of themselves as representing races. That's racist. That's South Africa circa 1960. We should disabuse people of the idea. Um, you can't have uh, a fetishizing of group disparity without implicitly indicting the groups who are successful. If you constantly view social outcomes in terms of racial differences in uh, success, you've got some losers, some quote-unquote victims of the system who are on the bottom, then you've also got some winners who are on the top. What about the Jews? How can you avoid anti-Semitism 
I'm not I'm not here indicting any particular person or movement. I'm making a logical observation. If you think that uh, the blacks and Latinos are underrepresented, I don't know how you avoid thinking that the Jews are overrepresented. I don't know how you avoid thinking that there are too many Asians in the STEM disciplines if you think there are too few blacks and Latinos in the STEM disciplines. Those fractions have to add up to one. You can't have an underrepresentation without having an overrepresentation. Are the people who come out on top guilty of privilege? Did they steal their success? Do they owe their success to the denial of opportunity to someone else? Is that universally true? Is that a, is that a, a, a dictum that we have to adhere to? Uh, it's, it's the wrong way to think about social outcomes, I think. Uh, so, you know, I want to fight in the battle of ideas. I don't want to give up uh, principle, uh, even if uh, it takes uh, a long time to be able to persuade people of the uh, correctness of, of, of the ideas. We lost Coleman. We do appear to have lost <laughs> We're timing out anyway, aren't we? Anyways, um, thank you so much, everyone, for attending the webinar. Thank you, Glenn and Coleman. Um, we'll hop back in the next minute here. Uh, you talked a lot about the importance of replacing the bad ideas with the good ideas. So thank you for working to do that. And if you're listening, ISI is all about educating for liberty and putting forth the good ideas. So I'd encourage you to check out the join.lsi link at the top there. But thank you all for tuning in. We'll have more events coming up in the next couple of weeks. So if you out for your emails, uh, you'll see more notifications there. Thank you all and have a good night. Good night, everyone. And good night, Marina. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.